Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using GrowCFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the GrowCFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Tanbir Jazimuddin with me. And we're going to have a good conversation about uh, finance and data and analytics. But first of all, Hello, Tanbir. Welcome to the Grow CFO Show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. So, Tanbir, tell me a little bit about yourself. I think a bit like me, your background's management consulting, isn't it? Yeah, although I actually started off as an accountant. Um, I don't know why I ended up in accountancy. I did a chemistry degree and I think one day decided I don't want to be stuck in a lab all my life. Um, accountant salaries don't look too bad. So, let's let, so as a 21-year-old, that's what I started doing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, after a while, I think I got to a point, like a lot of people in my career, where I had a choice, you know, my next promotion would basically firmly set in a finance career um, if I took that, or I could try something different. Um, and thankfully, I had some management consultancy opportunities um, available uh, and decided to go for that. Um, so yeah, I spent about five years in management consultancy um, and um, probably a bit more actually than that, because I left, I, left, I left to go back into a finance rather than back into management consultancy. That's, that's a longer story. Um, yeah, so I spent quite a lot of time in management consultancy. And I think it gets to a point you absolutely love the work, you love the clients, you love you love the companies that you're working for, but it's a it does take your toll, it does take a massive toll on you. Um, you know, you're never at home, you spend more time in airport lounges. Um, you know, you're doing some really cool stuff, um, and you're always excited, so you're always on adrenaline. Um, but yeah, you know, 20, 20 hour days just aren't sustainable in the longer term. So I wanted something a bit more predictable. So I decided to come back out of management consultancy, still trying to figure out exactly what I want to do. But I guess these days I'm back in the kind of finance coal face and enjoying it so far. Yeah. So you're, you're with a company called Vardags, Vardags at the moment. Yeah. So it's um, by far the smallest company I've worked for, um, a very small law firm. We have about, um, about hundred people in the firm, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a firm that specialises in family law, predominantly divorce. And it's a firm that's actually grown, it tripled its size in the last five years. And the owners want to do the same again in the next five years. So it's a really interesting place to be right now um, yeah. from, from a number of I, angles. I'd guess with lockdown and COVID and so on and everybody being, being stuck indoors, there's, there's possibly an upturn in divorces and family law is probably looking quite good. Um, yes and no. Um, I mean... Right, you know, for some strange reason, when people are locked down and can't go anywhere, they don't really want to initiate divorce proceedings at that point in time. Um, but also, I think more seriously, I think, you know, the court time is always limited and the courts will always prioritise things like, the family courts will always prioritise things like uh, domestic violence and children type cases first before divorces. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, and yeah, so, you know, as you'd expect, it's not quite as happening as it once was, you know, but we... You know, the approach we're taking is we're sitting tight because we know there's going to be a bounce back um, as soon as it all goes, uh, as, we, as soon as we start to come out of lockdown. Mm. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, about your finance team then. Um, who, what, what sort of team have you got working for you? So um, a very junior team. So one of Vardax's philosophies is that they recruit people straight out of university, the trying right. to find the brightest graduates. Yeah. Um, even some of our receptionists have been to Cambridge and Oxford. Um, so that's the kind of caliber that we have. Um, but in, in, and the same applies for finance. Um, really, really bright, bright, much, much brighter than I am, believe it or not. But, you know, they've never really worked anywhere else. 
Yeah. Um, so the challenge for me has been in, in other places where I've kind of had a fixed and stable team um, to actually now a team that, um, you know, starts off at a very junior level, but really hungry, really, really ambitious, want to grow and want to learn things. Um, it's creating that environment for them, creating the right opportunities. Um, so, you know, from 12 months ago, where the majority of the work is transactional, we're slowly trying to automate that so that as they develop, they can take on more and more of the value added tasks. Okay, that's interesting. So you're you're doing a lot of things. I, I believe you've got an award. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, yeah. So Generation CFO and um, the ACCA ran an event a few weeks ago, the Digital Finance Function Award. Um, and yeah, we've got Transform Transformer of the Year. Um, and I think that just kind of shows the journey that the team have come on. Um, you know, before I joined, I think they'd only just started to do management accounts. Um, yeah. And even then it was very kind of descriptive um, and I wasn't quite given the full picture. Whereas now um, what we produce is a lot more diagnostic and a lot, and in some cases predictive and with some of our forecasting. Um, so we're kind of moving up the maturity curve on that, on that respect. Yeah. Yeah. So t- tell me some of the things that you're doing then. Uh, if, 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 you're, if you're moving up the maturity yeah. curve, what, what are the key changes that move you up that curve? Well, firstly, it's, um, it's understanding um, what are the things that take you, you know, firstly, it's the big picture. What, is, what are the things that's taken a long time for you to do? Um, and, you know, the first piece of analysis that we did is let's look, let's look at what people are doing. Um, and 70% of the tasks were actually on two processes. Um, mm-hmm. One of them being reporting, which was taking about 30 to 40% of everyone's time. Um, yeah. And it was all kind of done manually in Excel. And the number of times I kind of see people dumping data from a system into, and pivot tabling it and stuff. Um, so, you know, we, we did an initial piece to try and automate some of that. And now we're actually fully, you know, we're, we're doing it again, the second phase, which is, um, you know, we're putting in, um, I'm allowed to say it, Power BI, um, yep. uh, with a kind of a proper data marts and data warehouses behind that, um, which again, you know, gives us most of the information that we need to make decisions around the business um, and gives us insight into where we can get better. Um, so that's taken up most of our time. Um, in the back end, background as well, we're also investigating process automation. Um, so what we have been doing is looking at simplifying the processes and eliminating the tasks that don't need, need to be done. Um, we're trying to iron out the kind of people side of the, thing, the, you know, the people side of the processes that cause blockages. Uh, mm-hmm. And then once we've done that, um, you know, we're looking at some applications that will then um, basically be performed by bots. Fantastic. Fantastic. And uh, the starting point of that one, it's it's so simple, but so effective. Yeah. And you, you've reminded me of so many consulting assignments where and I've been the, the finance guy or the numbers guy on the project team. And the first question is, well, we, we need some data about what we're trying to change, what we're trying to save. So I was like, well, go do some activity analysis. Yeah. So and practical, practical lessons. How, how did you do that activity analysis what what sort of process did you go through there um I mean, in a law firm people are used to time recording um yeah, so i didn't actually point. say yeah. do things in six minute intervals and i said right you know what are the things that you do um you know, as any new manager will do what you know what what are the things you do how much time do you spend on it mm-hmm. the, then you kind of got that first overall picture then you start to unpick certain things and you know certain things that you actually have to to kind of watch people do to, under, to mm-hmm. fully understand what exactly they're doing um Obviously, that, that last bit's been a bit hard during COVID because as soon as I joined, I think well, about two weeks later, we're all in lockdown. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've kind of done had a pretty good stab at working remotely. So um, so these things have been going, ongoing. But, yeah, it is good old-fashioned activity analysis. Um, you, don't, you, don't, you know you're not going to do everything at once, so you mm-hmm. pick the biggest problem um, yeah. and start to drill down. 
Yeah. So what, what sort of level of accuracy did you go to in that activity analysis? I know that I've always taken a view that, well, it's good enough. you don't have to record the six-minute intervals. No. You want to know if it's, uh, you're not really interested if it's 51% or 49%, around 50% of your time doing this is a good enough number. Is that the, the sort it's, of approach you took? Yeah, yeah it's, you know, it's being very pragmatic about it. You know, I, d- I didn't need to know that data. I just need to know roughly what you're doing. Um, and approximate numbers were fine in this case. Yeah. Um, you know, because that's, you know, that was good enough for me to make a decision around mm. what do I tackle first? Yeah. Um, and then you start to prioritize things in terms of what's the, uh, what's the overall benefit of that versus the time taken to deliver. So you're, mm. you're tackling the low hanging fruit first. Yeah. Um, and then the more difficult ones, which will give you more benefit, that's kind of your longer term project roadmap. Yeah. Don't know about you, but I, I often find difficulty getting that concept of it can be a, a fairly rough and ready figure across yeah. to accountants because we're, we're all used Definitely to a spurious level of accuracy where we've, we've got to have about four decimal places in our Excel spreadsheets. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example of that uh, mindset. Um, so I had a consultancy project um, at a FTSE 100 company um, and we're basically, you know, the, the brief was how do we get to a three or four day close? Um, and then as opposed to a two, two to three week close. Um, and the finance team, all ex-auditors, all really, all, all really good at what they do, but they were interested in just balancing things right down to the penny before they're sending out any reporting to the business. Mm. Um, and the business were telling me, well, I don't care if it's down to the nearest penny. I need it something now. So that's good enough for me to make a decision on. Um, you know, if I get it in two weeks time, it's too late. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just looking at some of the work that they're doing, you know, we looked at all the um, month end postings um, and about 30% of journal entries, bearing in mind this is a multi-billion pound company, um, were under £100. Um, so, you know, yes, so all the accounts and all the reconciliations were balanced down to the nearest penny. Um, in some cases, there were some 2P journals as well, but it really wasn't adding any value. You know, you're well past the kind of law of diminishing returns at that point. Yeah. Um, so it's really kind of addressing that, you know, what do you want? Do you want quality or do you want agility? Because you can't have both. Mm, uh, and what's the right balance yeah yeah and the, the further you get from month end with that result the less you can do about it yeah heard a great great analogy once it was from a, a guy who'd regard himself as a, a guru in kpis and he gave the analogy of well, well there's a there's a racing stable and the stable has got the the favorite to win the four o'clock at kempton tomorrow problem is the favorite has gone missing uh, they, uh, they've reported an open stable door. They've reported the, the, the horse went cantering off without a jockey across the paddock at exactly five minutes past four yesterday afternoon in a particular direction. But, uh, and they, they've got lots and lots of information on the horse escaping. But the, the key bit of information they didn't know was that, well, actually, we sh- you should have told us yesterday that the lock on the stable door was broken and we could have fixed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's definitely true. Managing tomorrow today is is definitely the phrase there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, finance process process automation. Um, I guess that your background in consulting, Capgemini, KPMG, McKinsey. Yeah, you must have a lot of experience around automating finance processes from from back then yeah um i mean yes and no i mean there's kind of a range of projects that i've worked on but i have done a little bit of it um and and it's not something that's new because you know simplifying and automating processes has been around for for as long as you can remember it's just the tool set's changing yeah um and for me 
you know, 90% of a process issue is usually behavioral. Mm. Um, I see a lot of companies and a lot of projects basically dive into doing something like process automation. Um, and yeah, and they don't quite get the right results because what you haven't done is, uh, you know, standardized or streamlined and reduce the variability in that process and yeah. look at people's behaviors. Uh, so I always describe it as um, if you want to put your head out the window, you open the window first, then put your head through. Yes. So, you know, st- simplify, streamline, Otherwise you get a very sore head. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It hurts. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, so that, that kind of methodology, you know, you, it, whether it's lean or Six Sigma or a combination of two or any others, that's, that's, that's been around for a long time. And I think, you know, looking at that and looking at the bigger organizational context, getting people to do stuff that they don't necessarily want to do, um, you know, that kind of change management piece, which is usually about 70% of the effort that you need on any yeah. project. Um, that's that's that same that's the adage that's that that's the part of the thing that's part of the process that's always been there that that's just something that you have to do um yeah the technology to do things that's just the icing in the cake later um but you know once you've uh, you know I've, i can tell you the number of times um uh, you know certainly in, in the early days when we we're looking at shared services and um you know whether or not to outsource processes um you'd go through and actually do the simplification exercise first and suddenly the business case to offshore um, disappears because you know you've done such a good a job of it. You know you've already you've already improved the processes and streamlined it, and it's you know fifty percent faster with less people. Yeah, so, I must admit, I, I can think of a couple of consulting assignments where we had to go through pretty much that argument that said yeah. where the, the the client wanted to just get on with it and outsource, and we yeah. were saying, well, hang on a minute, no, you get the processes right before you outsource them, otherwise you'd be paying over the yeah. odds for your outsourcing. And all that simplification will be bottom line profit for your, your outsource provider. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, sending through, sending, uh, offshoring a broken process, um, broken processes are inherently reliant on, on the knowledge inside the existing people's heads. Uh, once you've given it to somebody else in a different country, you probably need two or three times more people to do the same thing because they mm. don't have the, they don't know their workarounds. Yeah. So it does all come down to having data that can give you an insight. Yeah. Um, data that tells you about your processes, tells you about where you're spending time. Yeah. I guess data that's telling you about what's going wrong as well. Yeah. Yeah. Where are the bottlenecks? I think that's what you're interested in. Um, it's not just about data though. There's also an element of pragmatism, you know, okay, there's a huge bottleneck here, but do I really need to do that? Yeah. Um, and, and it comes back to the kind of lean way of thinking, um, which is the kind of you know the view of the customer. Um, if a customer walks into your organization and saw you doing something, are they prepared to pay for that? Yes or no. And if the answer is no, it's not adding value to your end product. And therefore, you know, let's think of a different way of doing it. Um, so, yeah, data is critical. And actually, data is something that you use to make a decision. Um, and data is something that you can monitor as you go along, but it's just it's not the only layer. Um, yeah. You know, you've got to have that kind of pragmatism, commercial mindset and so on on top of that. Mm. So you you're working your current role at the moment with lots of very very bright people but folk that don't necessarily have a finance background so are you are you finding that that's a real challenge to keep those people engaged and keep them well within my team or outside trying to do um well within my team um they've all kind of started their SEMA exams or most of some of them have i think some of them Half of them seem to want to do other things at some point in the future, but you know, much more interested in change and transformation. That's fine. I think um, mm. we can create career paths for all of them. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think 
with that caliber of people, I think you just got to keep challenging them to do something differently. Um, if they're going to be processing invoices all the time, yeah, of course they're going to get bored and of course they're going to want to look at other things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's about saying, okay, I know you're doing some menial tasks right now, um, but actually in the longer term, you know, if you put your mind to it, we'll work together towards eliminating some of this boring, automate the boring stuff, and we can do some cool stuff later on. There's, there's so much to do in a growing organisation. Absolutely. Um, in, in an organisation yeah. that wants to go yeah. places. And now a business is crying out for... Um, you know, not just data on finance, but actually data on how we're performing, um, yeah. data on you know the market performance. You know, where are the opportunities? Um, what about internally? You know, where 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 do we have excess capacity? Um, yeah. You know, from my perspective, I just want to know the data to tell me who who are the three people I need to kick this week. Yeah. Um, these are the sorts of things that we want to try and feed into with our data project. And I, I don't know about you, but I I always think that the the finance guys are actually some of the best to be the custodians of that data because that you're brought up with a, a certain precision. I know we talked about precision not necessarily mm. being important, but you, know, you will collect the same information in the same way all the time. And you know, there's a certain amount of checking that number A makes sense when you compare it with number B. Yeah. And um, there's the regular drumbeat of monthly reporting, which means you, you do things in a certain structured way. So, I don't see why accounts should be restricted to just the, the numbers of pound signs on. Yeah, I mean, I think a while, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I would have agreed with you. Um, you know, finance do have that mindset. Um, but actually, they're not the only analytical people these days. Finance still do things the same way now as they were 20 years ago. Um, yep. You know, they get the spreadsheet out, they do the calculations. Um, but you look at, um, you know, two big, two big things have happened since, uh, you know, in the last however many years i can't quite put a number if it's 10 years 20 years 30 years um but that you know it, it varies from industry to industry um but what has happened is that um you know certainly when i was growing up the marketing team were always seen as the kind of um the ones who didn't really care about the numbers whereas now they're the ones who've embraced big data and really driving forward yeah. advanced analytics yeah. yes um and secondly there's so much more data around and i don't think any one team can ever really be um, a custodian of data um mm. if you get finance driving it it's almost like the tail wagging the dog. Um, so these days, I think, you know, the, the chief data officer role has become a lot more prominent in a lot of organisations. Um, and it's all about working in cross-functional teams because, you know, one person mm-hmm. is never going to know everything. Um, so you kind of need that, that kind of multi, multi-data domain um, experience and knowledge within, uh, within a team where you can all crack the problem together. Yeah, I, I do do absolutely get that. It's, I think the only the only reason I would counter that slightly is the number of times that you know, I've been in a business meeting and I've put up the business results. Then the sales guys put up the, the sales results and suddenly his bottom line sales number isn't the same number as I've put up on the accounts. And then rather than actually work out what we should be doing about the numbers, we spend the next half hour debating why the numbers are different. Yeah, and, and that's such a common problem. Um, and it's all that, that's really around data governance. Um, and what you'd probably have is that the sales team have probably created their own data set, the finance team have created their own data set. What you should be doing is actually looking at, you know, a curated data set where everybody in the organization is looking from. It's not easy to get to. Um, it's not a technical issue, it's a people issue again. Yes. Um, yes. And, you know, it's about having the right kind of data disciplines documented, having the right controls in so the data are clean as they as come into the data set. And you're not dumping things into Excel, creating a new version of the truth every time, which is enormously common. Um, 
but actually, Kevin, it's not just about that curated data set and that singular view of the data. It's actually using the data together. So, I, you know, I remember one project that I had where, you know, they'd actually done the data work. The data was pretty good. Um, but then, you know, the board were meeting firstly, let's meet the um, finance team. Let's look at the finance data. Next hour, we'll look at the, um, uh, the sales and marketing data. And I'm not joking, you know, it's like the first hour, oh my God, our daily sales are terrible. What's going on? You know, compared to last year, we're going on. Let's start thinking about, you know, um, cross restructuring. Next meeting, um, we're talking about market share uh, is rising in, in comparison to competitors. And everyone pat themselves on the back. And I was, I'm just there thinking, guys, come on. Mm. Those two data sets should really be on the same page. Yes. Not, not a finance or a, and, a, and a marketing team coming to you separately, but together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, I'm reading into this, Dunbar, that you're perhaps not the greatest fan of Excel. Um, no, I mean, Excel has its place. Don't get me wrong. I've built a few models. I still use Excel quite a lot. Um, but I think it's actually a limiting factor. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, I see a lot of chatter on, on, the, um, on, on the web and LinkedIn, LinkedIn in particular about, you know, there's a whole load of Excel fanboys, which slightly irritate me because, mm-hmm. yeah, it's great. But actually, um, there's two things... Uh, well, well, two of the many things that's wrong with it. Um, firstly, it's limited in terms of what you can do with it. There's so much cool technology out there t- um, to um, do stuff with data. Yeah. Um, and not just in terms of functionality, but also in terms of data volumes. Um, and then secondly, it gets you into bad habits. Um, you know, you suddenly don't start to deal with data in terms of um, in a database format where you're looking things at columns. You suddenly got all these subtotal rows in there and and kind of cells that is this cell plus this cell rather than rules-based, which is what you need if you want to scale data. Yeah. Um, you know, when I mean scale data, you know, you're talking, if you want to look at an entire view of the organization, you're looking at hundreds of millions of rows of data at least, and mm-hmm. that's in the aggregated format, which you can never do in Excel. And if you did, it will take you forever because, um, you know, how many, how many workbooks do you need to join together to do that? Oh, absolutely. Which I, I guess is why you're looking at Power BI and tools like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Power BI is just it just takes the heavy heavy lifting out of it, and it gives me the interactivity. Um, in the old days, before any of these business intelligence tools existed, um, you know, the conversation you'd have in a meeting, okay, let's explore sales. Okay, let's drill down to the next level. Can you tell me what's happened here? Let me go. Let me go back to my team. I'll come back to you later today. And, and then that cycle would continue. Whereas now, um, it's not just Power BI. There are plenty of tools that do exactly the same thing um, I just click on it drill down or fil- create a different view of the data or or filter it in a different way and I can see those answers straight away so I can mm. actually have the live conversations yeah. with people and it's just so much more effective absolutely absolutely so outside your work work in Vardex uh, Tambir you're involved in some FP&A groups yeah, just uh, you know, um, one of the things that um, I've always been advised to do um, by people more senior than me, and, I, and I'm offering the same advice to everybody else, is just you know build your personal brand outside work, um, get involved with networks, you know, show showcase the stuff that you're doing, um, and use it as an opportunity to learn from others as well. So there's no shortage of finance discussion groups, and um, certainly since the um, beginning of lockdown, they just seem to have exploded. Um, you know, I'm not just limited to the local regional groups in London, but you know, all over the world. So I've got one tonight that's based in Dallas um, that I'm attending to. I am starting to feel lockdown fatigue a bit, you know, Zoom fatigue at the moment, yep. but there's so much learning out there um, and I do encourage everyone to do it. But yeah, coming back to your question. Um, yeah, I mean, a couple of things, you know, um, 
you know, have done presentations externally. Um, and, you know, right now I'm kind of working a bit with the FPNA Trends Group. Um, you know, I've already mentioned Generation CFO. Yep. Um, I'm doing a bit of work with um, FPNA Trends Group. I think a couple of things specifically. One is um, I'm looking at, um, I'm writing a white paper on data visualization in the FPNA space. Um, and then secondly, um, you know, we're kind of formed, we, we formed a machine learning and NAI committee around, you know, how is artificial intelligence and machine learning being used in FPNA, you know, to get better forecasts, more accurate insights into the organization and ultimately drive better decisions. Um, so yes, yeah, quite, quite a massive group, the FPNA trends group. Um, yeah. They do quite a lot of them. Um, they do a lot of things. It, it, it's, it's a really good collection of leaders, finance leaders from across the world. Um, we do a lot of good thinking. And it's just a really good way of kind of understanding what other people do and what understand what best practices are. Um, you know, I, I like to think I take away much more from them than I have, I have to offer back. So. so white paper on data visualization. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so... <laughs> Um, so again, it comes back to a project that I once did. Um, we, you know, we were engaged by the finance team to basically to put in some uh, reporting applications. And finance, being finance, um, used to seeing, thing, seeing data in tabular format all their lives. That's what they wanted. Um, so we, you know, we deliver them. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Um, but um, you know, communication is an event that happens in the mind of the receiver. So as soon as we yeah. started to expand beyond finance. Um, you know, people in other teams are used to seeing things in different ways. You know, some people like bar charts, some people like scatter charts. Um, you know, the odd person even likes a pie chart, which I don't never understand why. Um, but yeah, ultimately, um, what you are trying to do as a finance person or, or any person that works with data is communicate your communicate what's happening um, and communicate the insights and what to do next in a way that the person at the other end can understand and act on it. Mm. Um, so. You know, if you have purely tabular data, yeah, we can create all of all the bells and whistles. So you can drill down and have all the different instant views. But actually, somebody who's not used to seeing tables won't understand that. So yeah, this white paper is really around just thinking about um, how do you use data uh, to tell a story. Um, there is also the flip side, and people do people with Power BI or Click or Tableau uh, suffer this as well. Is that as soon as it's seen, because it's so easy to create new charts, you create every single permutation of the same data set which then leads to a picture of confusion. Yeah. So what I'm really writing about is actually, you know, the FPNA methodology of let's understand what the drivers of value in the organization. Um, and let's, let's make sure that our visualizations kind of communicate that. So if I'm looking at uh, give the simplest example, if I want to grow revenue, um, there are two things I can do. Well, it's more than two things, but generally I can sell more or price better. Yes. If I want to sell more, um, I can either sell more to existing clients or go out and get new clients. And you can see how that thought pattern develops. That's the kind yeah, of yeah, official yes. value driver methodology. So when you're having that discussion, you know, then you've got to think, well, if I want to sell more um, to new clients, then I've got to think about, well, am I getting better or worse? You know, that's, that's kind of when I start to show, um, you know, cost of acquisition or the number of new acquisitions um, in, in, say, a, in a VAR chart or a, or a line chart that shows the trend. If I'm trying to compare against it to something else, that's kind of where I start to look at, say, um, a clustered VAR chart. Um, if I'm trying to show the composition of, you know, where are my new leads coming from, you know, I might look at a tree map or a, or a, horizontal or a vertical VAR chart. So it's understanding all these kind of basic principles about, well, firstly, what are you trying to talk about? Then secondly, from that, what are you trying to communicate? Mm. um and 
and you know and ultimately that kind of drives how you present the data to your stakeholders which will result in a far more efficient conversation that's so important presenting the right data and showing it in the right way and yeah one of my um groundings in consultancy and it's it is best part of 20 years ago now, 15 to 20 years ago. I was part of the team that put together the balanced scorecard methodology in PwC. And that was all based around the sort of value driver thinking. Uh, we use systems thinking yeah. as a methodology to do that. And back in those days, the biggest problem was, well, there's a paucity of data about the place. Yeah. Let's work out what it is we need to measure then let's go out and work out what systems we need to build and so on to to capture the data. And I I just feel, fast forward 15, 20 years, the same underlying issue is there. What is it that we should measure? But the problem is the opposite one. Actually, we're waist-deep in data now. We've got too much of the darn stuff. Yeah, and less time to analyse. Yeah, less time to analyse it. So it's a question of which bits of this data actually matter versus which bits can we ignore? Yeah, there's two approaches to that. One is the kind of inductive top-down approach and the other one is the more um, emergent, you know, deductive, let's see the data and let's get some trends from it. Um, The latter I would never have done 10, 15 years ago, um, but I would consider now because, you know, machine learning can actually kind of start to give you the insights and point you in the right direction. Um, But, you know, that's still not an exact science. You know, you're looking for correlations that may or may not be true, you know, um you know for example countries with a higher population of stock have a higher birth rate um is it causal i don't know um yeah <laughs> so you know it just happens to be it may, may, may well be a coincidence um but you know i think the you know the traditional way it still has a lot of value which is what is your information strategy um yeah. and you know you're looking at firstly your, yes your value drivers as we talked about you know here's the data that we need um you know, and here, but more importantly, you know, what are the decisions you make on a daily basis, on a weekly exactly. basis, on a monthly yeah. basis? From that, you can start to triangulate your data requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you will also find is that you only need a very small subset of the data that you actually have. Mm-hmm. You don't need to tr- go down to if you've got hierarchy data hierarchies levels of one to ten. You know, ten being the most granular form of data, one being you know total firms total firm you know firm total. You only need to go one or two levels down the down the data hierarchy to. Um, give you say 60-70% of your decision coverage so you yeah. don't need to put everything into the database which will inevitably slow it down you never ask you never ask the user you know what data do you want because they'll say everything so you kind of start to triangulate that mm-hmm. so that's your information strategy your data strategy is then well how are we going to source that data how are we going to bring it in how often where is it going to be stored you know yeah. do you need like a high performing server or do you need like um, you know kind of cheaper um, you know cheaper storage be fine um, and then more importantly, I think, is your data governance and uh, in your master data management. How do you keep the data clean and usable? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those three processes, those three things have been around for a long time. Um, and as long as you're disciplined, you'll get that right. Yeah, I think that that is the, the interesting thing here, because machine learning is a bit new. Mm-hmm. But all of the other stuff has the same problems, issues and so on exist, existed 15, yeah. 20 years ago, and we were working out how to put balanced scorecards together. Yeah. Um, no. Where's the data coming from? How do we get this data regularly? Yeah. How do we make sure that we get the errors out of this data? How do we clean it up? How do we keep it clean? Where do we store it? Um, what sort of software do we need to produce the graphs? And back in yeah. those days, 
at Excel quite often was the answer. Yeah. I, I actually used to hate the client that went along and uh, just said, oh, we need a balanced scorecard. Oh, we'll buy a piece of balanced scorecarding software. Yeah. Perhaps you ought to have thought about what it is you want to put on that scorecard before yeah. you go and buy the software. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that, that's still a problem now because, you know, we will often go and speak to senior management who've already been seduced by a sales pitch from a software vendor yeah. to say, look at what you can do. But actually, you know, 80 percent, 70, 80 percent of a work is actually integrating the data together to create mm. a, a curated data set. Anybody can create a software that gives you a nice balanced scorecard or a nice pretty picture. Um, that's actually you know, less than 10 percent of the work. Yeah. And I've actually said on many occasions, uh, yeah, let's let's just muck the whole thing up in Excel. See if you like it. See if it does what you want. And yeah. let's let's go through two or three iterations of tweaking this a bit before we go and buy the software. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's about, and you'll probably find that you know once you've agreed on what what it is that you need, um, your soft your criteria for selection of software then changes. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, Tanbit. That has been absolutely fascinating. I know we could probably go and talk for hours here because I think we're 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 into a subject here in, in terms of FP&A and analysing data and presenting data that we both have a fascination for. So I think we probably ought to wrap this up now before we totally bore the audience with us being yeah. geeks. <laughs> yeah, hopefully some of them are still awake at this point. Yeah, thank you very much for joining me on the on the uh, Grow CFO show. Thank you very much for having me, Kevin. Yeah.